Hello, my name is Rosemary Milsom and I'm the director of the Newcastle Writers' Festival. Making Sense of Death was recorded in 2017. Stephen Amsterdam, Nikki Gemmel and Leah Kaminsky explore this sensitive subject with host Susan Windham. I hope you enjoy this revealing conversation. My name is Susan Windham and I'm honoured to welcome you to a discussion of this important subject. This uh, an aspect of life that doesn't always receive much open attention in our society that tends to be focused on youth and health and living forever. Uh, but like a lot of taboo topics, it has in recent years started to become the subject of uh, private, public and political conversations. And authors are contributing a whole lot of thought-provoking books from polemic and advice books to memoir and fiction. My personal experience led me a few years ago to ed edit an anthology called My Mother, My Father on Losing a Parent. And I'm sure most of you have looked at death close up, whether the death of a parent, a friend, a sibling or a child, and perhaps felt lonely and confused by your feelings as I did. Conversation and books can really help. And because of all that, I know you'll have things to say and we'll make time for your questions at the end. Now, it's my great pleasure to introduce a multi-talented panel that brings together a vast amount of professional and personal experience of dying. Leah Kaminsky, on my right, is a doctor, a GP with a practice in Melbourne. She's also an accomplished writer who has addressed the subject of death, among many others, in award-winning books, essays, short stories and poetry. Her novel, The Waiting Room, which won the 2016 Voss Prize, is about a doctor haunted by her dead parents and by the Holocaust, as she also confronts modern-day terrorism. Uh, Leah's other work includes the anthology Writer MD and Cracking the Code, the co-written true story of a family looking for a cure for their child. And especially pertinent today is her latest book, We're All Going to Die, a compassionate and joyful book about death. <laughs> New York-born Stephen Amsterdam has worked as a map editor, a producer's assistant and a pastry chef, among other things, which somehow brought him to his calling as a palliative care nurse in Melbourne. Stephen is the author of essays, short stories, and three slightly speculative novels, Things We Didn't See Coming, What the Family Needed, and his latest, The Easy Way Out, which is a humane and at times humorous story about a dying assistant in an imagined near future where voluntary euthanasia is legal. The Easy Way Out is a finalist in this year's ALS Gold Medal for Australian Literature and the Australian Book Industry Awards. Congratulations, Stephen. Mm. And Nikki Gemmel, who I'm sure many of you know, is a journalist and best-selling author who lives in Sydney and is known especially for her frank exploration of women's lives, passions and fears. I'm sure many of you read her popular column in the Weekend Australian magazine, which explores all sorts of issues that spring from her own life and conversations and family and broad, broad matters <laughs> that I love. <laughs> Nikki has published 13 novels, five works of non-fiction and six children's books. Among her books are the novel, I always do this and misnumber my pages. <laughs> Among her books are the novel that became an international phenomenon, The Bride Stripped Bear, and a personal essay, why You Are Australian, A Letter to My Children. 
Her new book is The Memoir After, which was written immediately after the death of her mother in 2015. Nikki and I will also be talking in another session together at three o'clock this afternoon if you want more. Now I'm going to start by asking you, each of you, you've written very different books which touch on similar subjects and I want to start by asking you just why you wrote your books and what you wanted to communicate. And Lear, I thought I'd start with you. I mean, as a doctor, you, um, you're really about helping, curing, <laughs> keeping people alive. Why did you want to address the subject of death particularly? Precisely because of that, because the notion in my profession is that we are all about keeping people alive, so that if people die, we're a failure. And I woke up one morning a few years ago and thought, I'm really scared of dying slash death. And I thought, well, that's not so unusual, my age group, my background. Uh, but I thought, well, it is unusual if I'm feeling that, like that as a doctor and I'm not comfortable with the notion of discussing death and dying to the point where when my daughters would go into sports girl and want that scarf with the skull on it, I'd just do a runner. Um, then it doesn't bode well. How, you know, how many of people in the health professions feel like that. So I sort of put myself on the anatomy dissection plate and pinned myself down as a kind of test rat for then asking the questions. And I kind of did this death road trip. I just, it was an immersion manuscript. I just went and spoke to people from all walks of life about death and dying. Um, I'd never been into the local cemetery, for example, because you, know, you just don't go to cemeteries. They're all dead. Um, and it was really a, a, a horrid fear. So in, in writing the book, I really wanted to confront my personal fear, but more importantly, use that as a springboard to look at death denialism in Western culture, and in particular in my profession. Do you think being a doctor encouraged <coughs> that fear in you? Or do you think it's just a normal fear that you were willing to confront? I think it's a primeval, sort of primordial fear that um, many people uh, hold. It's a natural fear. Some deal with it better than others. Others have come up to me and said, I'm not scared of death, and I'm going, I'm so jealous. Um, so, yeah, I think it's very nuanced. I don't think there's a, a, a black or white answer to that, a, a yes or no. It, there's a whole range and a whole gamut of human experiences and human attitudes to death and dying. Did writing the book help? <laughs> Everyone always asks me that. <laughs> Do you know what? It did um, in, in many aspects. I, I can at least, I, I can't get up here and say, yeah, I'm not scared of death or dying. I'm terrified. But I can at least have honest conversations now. And I can, more importantly, I can talk to my patients about it. Whereas before, you know, the, the D word would come up and I'd sort of just zoom out and oh, let's talk about something else. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that was really disingenuous as a doctor, but as a writer also I think it was really important for me. Uh, it's obviously something I s I've circled around my whole life and everything I've written. Hmm. Stephen, I'll stick with the professional <laughs> for the moment. Um, you, of course, deal with dying people all the time, but your, your role is to ease them into death but not to cause their death, of course. But in your novel, Evan, who is perhaps something of an alter ego, is a dying assistant. Why did you want to project into that? And why did you want to write a description? A couple of things. Yeah. The, um, the, the, 
I think the, the impulse really came because in palliative care, from time to time, someone will say, can we do this a little more quickly? Or I wish we could do this more quickly or you wouldn't treat a dog like that. And my response has been pretty strictly to, gone in two directions at once, which is I wish there was a law, there ought to be a law, and then I'm so glad it is not my job. And those are my internal responses. The, the, the external responses is I get to say this is not legal in the state of Victoria. I mean, not, not quite so starkly as that, but then to investigate whatever else is going on and see if there's something we can do better. And often there is. And thinking about this over the, the past few years is what led me to write the book, simply and be quite grateful that I have more than one job. And it's, it's a very good outlet. And doing it by way of fiction was a way to, for me to say, what if? Who is the person who would be right for this job? And I start out with uh, Evan doing his first assist and really trying to figure out what that feels like, what's, you know, why does he think he's right for that job? And then the act of writing the novel is really just saying, are you sure you're right for that job? Are you, what about this situation? What about that situation? Are you sure you agree with that? So really to keep pushing it in his, pushing the narrator, pushing Evan from as many different points of view as I could is a lot easier than writing that out as an essay. Yeah. Can I just, what do you mean by assist? Assist, uh, it's, so in the, in the book, it's you know, the day after next year or something when, when it's legal. Right. And so it's within the context of a very highly you know, regimented hospital environment where, where the patient has ticked all the boxes, satisfied all the specialists, and is being presented with an Embutol. I just want to jump in for a moment with that. I was at Sydney Writers' Festival last year and on a panel with Father Frank Brennan and Andrew Denton, and we had flown in while she was still alive, the lovely Corey Taylor, sort of from the speakers. Mm -hmm. And it, afterwards, Andrew took me aside and said, you know, Leah, I've actually never thought about this whole conversation from the point of view of the people doing it. Mm -hmm. and, and he hadn't really spoken to doctors about, you know, who is the one that's going to do this? And I made the horrid mistake at, at the time of saying, you know, um, Corey was talking about her right to seek this and I said but I'm the one that has to go home at the end of the day and feed, after I've killed you and fed my feed my children and you know go to Coles and do the shopping and no one is having that conversation with doctors and she just really I can just sort of almost boomed in on me you are not killing me and it really I had to really pause and rethink mm -hmm. the whole thing, mm -hmm. but then Andrew, subsequently to that, has gone off and spoken to lots and lots yeah. of doctors and health mm -hmm. professionals about yeah. that. Mm -hmm. we, we'll come back to Sorry. this whole huge subject, mm -hmm. but let's just introduce Nikki's book first. Uh, I mean, there's so many nuances around <laughs> I it, I want to talk on that now. <laughs> yeah, I know, but we, we, we'll make, right we will make a place for that. I, I did want to say in terms of... Um, uh, Everything that I've been hearing from people about that perspective is that the people who want it, it's absolutely their decision and it's release. It is not, I am being killed by someone, I want release mm. and it's my decision and it's mine alone. But anyway, mm. <laughs> I'll have to put on my glasses because I do want to see you all because 
It is so lovely to be here in Newcastle talking about this book because my mum was a Newcastle girl and um, met my dad, woo, Cessnock High. And <laughs> woo! <laughs> my mum was Miss Newcastle in the 1950s. <laughs> I've still got the photograph. So this is where it all began for her. And Newcastle was the place that made her the empowered woman in control of her destiny right until those last moments of her life. She was a coal miner's daughter. She married a coal miner up in Cessnock. She was expected to just disappear into a life of Cessnock and <laughs> raising kids and all the rest of it. She fought against that her entire life. But anyway, why did I write this book? It began when two police officers half my age or thereabouts knocked on my door about 18 months ago and they had that face that you just know something awful, awful has happened. And my first thing was, the children. And they went, no, 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 it's not the children. And then I went, my husband. And it was like, no, 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 it's your mother. And as soon as they said that, I knew what mum had done, that she was dead. And I needed to know why and how. Basically, when my mother died, a crime scene was established. It was an unexplained death. And as these very humane young police officers were questioning me, one of them asking me how to spell euthanasia, another one when I mentioned Philip Nitschke had never heard of Philip Nitschke, as they were asking me all these questions about what I knew about my mother's death, how involved I was or not, they took out their notebooks and one of them started writing notes about what I was saying. And it dawned on me, it took a long time for, for me to, for the dawning, that I was being, being investigated alongside this very compassionate conversation that they were having with me. Basically, about 18 months ago, my mother, who had chronic pain, she decided to take her life in very bleak and lonely circumstances. She was in front of the telly. The telly was still on when she was found by the builders who were renovating her flat the next day. She thought about it very, very carefully. She'd done her research. She didn't want to involve any of her three kids, two of my brothers who still live in Newcastle. Um, she didn't want to involve any of us. But by doing that, she broke us. But she knew the laws around euthanasia, that we could be facing police investigations, huge fines, possibly jail terms, if we had been there doing it for her in any way. She'd asked both my brothers if they would receive Nembatol from Mexico. They both said, no, 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 no. We can't do that, Mum. We don't want to be culpable in any way in murdering our mother. Um, she managed to do it herself. This glorious woman, this glorious elderly woman, we don't know how she got it, but she got it. Um, and I guess for me as a writer and a novelist, I always write to understand, to answer questions. Sometimes not to answer questions, but to go on that journey if I can. So for me, from that moment when the crime scene was declared around my mother's death, when I had to go to the morgue and identify her, which is the most awful thing that you, you, you can be asked to do, um, I kept on thinking, my God, this is like a detective story. And in parallel to the police officers, I, you know, they called me into the police station, I had to give a statement. In parallel to their investigation, 
my mother had managed to doctor shop all around various suburbs of Sydney. She ended up with an addiction to opioids and this little old woman ended her life in shameful kind of circumstances for her. She had to go and lie to various doctors to get the pills that she wanted. But it was, I wanted to somehow honour this life and I wanted to say to mum, you are magnificent and what you did was empowering and courageous and it was absolutely about a woman in control right to the end of her life. But my God, you broke your children and you broke your grandchildren, my own children, in the process. And I wish it had been different. So that's what After mm. is all about, is an exploration of all of that. Thanks, Nikki, and also about your whole relationship with your mother too, which is fascinating. Oh, yes, that's all about a tricky <laughs> mother-daughter relationship too. I wanted to be brutally honest there. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, on the cover of your book, the question is asked, what is a good death? And I'd really like to put that to all of you, perhaps starting with you. You know, after all the thinking you've done, it's there on the cover. I'm not sure the book fully answers the question, but what would you say? Yeah, I, it's very nuanced, and I think the whole euthanasia debate is interesting. I'm just so grateful to be on this panel and Lee alongside it, because I feel like it's been colonised by men. A lot of the argument, we hear a lot from male figures <laughs> in terms of euthanasia. What is that about that situation, you know, it's not black and white. It's not absolutist. As someone who's now lived on the coalface of the euthanasia situation now, I'd, you know, I'd, I went back to Philip Nitschke, discovered my mother had eight years of correspondence with him. She had rung Philip Nitschke a week before she died asking for a home visit, like a doc, you know, asking for a GP to come into her flat. And he wasn't able to make it, so she did it alone. In terms of what is a good death, my mother would have seen in the circumstances that exist in Australia now that this was the best death, this was the only way for her to escape chronic pain. For me, as her daughter, I don't see it as an optimum death. I don't see it as a fantastically great death. Yes, for her, but for all the ripples with all the other people around her, my dream is that one day in Australia we have something like a Dignitas, which is the clinic in Switzerland where you can go to die. I have a darling, darling doctor friend who lives um, near Sydney. Not in, in a few weeks she is going to Dignitas to end her life, surrounded by her four children and her best friend in a room brimming with love. They're all going to be holding hands. Her adult children have been on this journey with her through chronic pain for two decades. Is this Helena who's yes, in the book? Yes, who I've, I've, I've written about. Now, for me, that is the best death. That is a good death. My mum never had that option. And I will say, Helena has to go through so many hoops to actually be accepted by the clinic. She's still going several months down the track. The latest one is they want her dental records because they're concerned about imposters now. That oh. people, you know, who are not who they are when they turn up. If there was a Dignitas in Australia, there would have been a lot of checks and balances. You know, you, you have to see several doctors, psychiatrists, physiotherapists, all the rest of it. My mum would have gone to them. Instantly, red flags would have been raised. A, you seem like you're prone to depression. 
You've, you've never taken antidepressants. My mum didn't. She was a woman, a Newcastle girl, stoic, you know, coal miner's daughter. You don't do that kind of stuff, so she didn't. Um, and also, in terms of the chronic pain, my mum thought that drugs were the answer and the only answer. She never investigated a pain clinic. And that would have been one of the first things that all the doctors would have said to her, you need to research this further, you need to dive into the world of pain clinics which are attached to all our major hospitals and do a lot of other things besides the opioids, the Oxycontins and all the rest of it. It's, it's moving, it's Pilates, it's, it's, it's sleep management, it's, it's mindfulness, it's all these different things that my mother never investigated. So for me, that is heartbreaking to think that if we'd had something like <laughs> um, voluntary assisted uh, euthanasia laws in Australia, I think it would have given mum more years of her life because the heartbreak for me after the very in invasive autopsy that the coroner demanded because it was an unexplained death the beautiful coronial assistant rang me and she said, Nikki, Nikki, I really shouldn't be telling you this, but um, the doctor remarked as, as he was doing the autopsy on your mum that she had the healthiest organs of any woman he'd seen of that age and she had several decades of living left in her. And that is my heartbreak, that she saw no way out. So she perhaps needed a doctor, <laughs> a good doctor who understood all these things. Leah, how would you... Because men dominate this conversation... Oh, we'll no, come no, to <laughs> Stephen is the least dominating or dogmatic person on this subject. But we will ask Leah as the doctor, what's your response to what Nikki's saying? What's your idea of a good death, if you can answer that? Hmm. My response is more as, as a daughter than as a doctor. And, I, I mean, I can put on my professional hat and I've got lots to say and how abysmal the system is and... Totally agree, but it, it, I guess it sort of brings to mind my own personal experience, um, which was as a, as a girl of 21 travelling overseas, I had the phone call from my father um, saying, broken down in tears, saying she's killed herself. And he was talking about my mother. Um, my mother had taken an overdose. We don't know if it was an intentional suicide and, and your whole... Um, discussion about the coroner, you know, I had to go to the coroner's court as a 21-year-old and look at the um, the autopsy report of my mother and look at her lungs and her liver and, and they were all perfectly healthy too. And that was, I was a medical student at the time. It was really a nightmare. Um, to that my mother suffered from depression. She was a um, Holocaust survivor who'd come out of Bergen-Belsen at the age of 21 without any family. So there's no surprise, but she had overcome it and brought up two kids and was sort of relatively normal. Um, and, you know, she, she was also a, a, a brilliant woman, had a business, you know, looked after us, but really struggled with depression. In those days, it was a very organic approach to it. You take drugs get your lithium right, you, you know. The, and I just remember as a child reciting, like almost incantatory, the names of the antidepressants and the, the pills up in our... But that was what there was. That was my mum. Um, so that in a way, there was no surprise, but for a 21-year-old, it was life-changing. So what I did at that point was just not talk about it. And we were talking about this. We sort of preempted you in, in the green room that... The, the overwhelming feeling that I and my family had was one of shame. 
And I carried that with me my whole life. And, you know, I've been a GP for a long, long time and I've had numerous conversations with people who are contemplating suicide or families who've had the ripple effect of, of suicide, overdoses, um, prolonged deaths, or, you know. Um, and and I've, as I wrote, every chapter deals with a different aspect of death and dying. It's not just about euthanasia, that's sort of the last chapter, but, but the conversation of death in society. So the one chapter I wrote about suicide, um, I handed in to my editor at HarperCollins, the wonderful Catherine Milne, and she wrote back a beautiful email. She said, this is really beautifully written, Leah, but there's something missing here. And I'm going, oh, shit. <laughs> and I hadn't written about my mother. So here I was writing about how suicide is so stigmatised in society and, you know, there's shame on the families and blah, 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 all of that. And I'd given examples and I'd drawn out literature and... But I hadn't put my own story in there, so I really... I think that was the most gut-wrenching part of that book, was to write about my mother and reframe the narrative. Mm. From one of being ashamed of a woman who couldn't cope and who abandoned her children and did herself in... Um, and, you know, anger, gee, how could you leave me at 21 and do this to me, blah, 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 to actually rewriting her narrative along the lines of what Nikki's saying, which makes me cry, of, well, maybe it was an act of courage. Maybe she didn't want to burden us. Maybe she knew that, you know, all the hospitalisations and all the agony that she went through, the toll it was playing on our lives, and this was actually a choice. And that, for me, was a really life-changing moment. And the fact that I could then, you know, do all the festivals and, and book events and actually talk about it without feeling... I've still got that kind of little cloud of shame. That, oh, my God, how can I be talking about this? But bloody hell, I have to talk about it. And, again, I have to be that lab rat to, you know, like you're doing, bring that conversation out because the people I've met as I've been touring, it's, it's just been gut-wrenching and heartwarming. Mm. Um, I do want to know about your work with dying people, sorry, as a doctor, um, but would you like to, I, I mean, in terms of the way that you try to help your patients, and I know it must be different in every case, how do you help them towards what you or they consider a good death? So my hat off to Stephen in this, because very badly is the answer. And I think uh, doctors have got a hell of a lot to answer for, and I'm kind of walking around doing talks to doctors, you know, waving the flag and getting a lot of flack for it. But I think we have... You know, we had at Monash University as medical students, we had a week of sex ed. And I will never forget, you know, the blackboard. There was penis and vagina underlined with chalk, and then all of them, mainly the males, excuse me, would then give <laughs> other words, you know, euphemisms or slang, other words for those organs and sex week went on for a week and it was all out there like we were really you know. <laughs> um, but did anyone mention death mm. did we have death week did we have have one conversation in all of our training as medical students junior doctors there was nowhere to talk about it and it's only been I think recently that thankfully this conversation's coming out and since I sort of got the contract for the book you know Atul Gawanda and there's been mm. Paul Kalanick there's been a lot of um, interesting books that have come out. But, you know, I think palliative care, if done well, if done well, is brilliant. And I think, you know, my, my, my hat off to you, but I don't think it's the entire answer. Hmm. Mm. All right. Well, Stephen... The good death The question. good death. And yeah. how, what, do you feel you, you uh, helped I, to I mean, achieve I feel it? like I see a lot of good deaths. 
And that's, that's the job. The job description is to normalize death, which is the first step to a good death, is to not have it be a, a thing of shame, not have it be a thing of pain, constipation. Um, there, there's so many little physical things that, that change somebody's feeling about themselves. So many, some frailty, dignity. You know, how do you hold on to dignity? We're not, we're not trained to let go of that, but that, that can be part of the process. And the good death is really, it does require the communication with the family. People, you know, and that, that's what we do when we first meet a patient, is figure out who's in their life, who's gonna be a caregiver, who's gonna be, um, who's gonna need more help along on this than others. Sometimes, you know, sometimes the family members are helpful, sometimes they're less helpful. Our job is to just get them all onto the same page as, as well as possible. But the, the spur to write my book was being conscious of the fact that we don't, that we, it's not always a good death and people sometimes wanna hurry it along. And really to see, so the book is, you know, it's not episodic in this regard, but I've kind of designed a lot of deaths that people would design for themselves if given the chance. So the first, section of the book, he's working in a hospital environment and there are so many protocols and I know somebody went through the Dignitas thing down to the dental bit. There, there's so many boxes that need ticking and I was recently part of a consultation with the Victorian Parliament who's working on a law and you know they, they say, oh it's going to be great, we're going to have a multidisciplinary meeting with a specialist, the GP, someone who's known the patient a long time, maybe a social worker thrown in. Have you ever tried to schedule a multidisciplinary meeting? Yeah. <laughs> like the, the, there's the hard reality, and some some of that was went into the book. And actually, at one point, my editor said you could use lose ten thousand ten thousand words on the um, bureaucracy, <laughs> but there will be bureaucracy, and so it's not going to go right. And then at this sort of running parallel to to that storyline is uh, he dips into a, an exit international kind of group that do, does do that thing that your, your mother requested, goes and sits with somebody while they do this. And there are no rules. It's exactly, it's the patient's choice. What does that feel like? How we, again, from, from the point of view of the purveyor. Mm -hmm. So really just tried to get as many good deaths into the book as I could and... And a couple of bad ones. Well, not so, you know, don't go according not to the tidy, rules. No. Not tidy, <laughs> no. I think a good death, what's really possibly key to a good death, whatever that is, and that's a very individual thing, I, mm. I suppose the most important thing would be not a lonely, painful death, mm. would, would be when do you start the conversation about death? And my, you know, my kind of drum that I'm banging is that it's too late when it comes to talking about voluntary euthanasia, that if our culture in Western society is not prepared to talk about miscarriage and you're not prepared to talk about being pregnant till you're three months because why? Because what if the fetus dies? Mm. I mean, for God's sake, it's death. It's part of life. And if we can't mm. have honest conversations all the way through, how are we going to, ha how's it going to be any different around mm. end of life Euthanasia, voluntary euthanasia things. So I guess that's what I'm trying to shake up is, is our de death denial, death denialism in culture. Mm. Can mm. I just say on that, in terms of um, the responses 
to my book, overwhelmingly I'm getting that older people want to be listened to about this and they're not getting enough air in the conversation about what they want for themselves. I was remiss in that as a daughter. You know, my mother, she spoke to me over the last couple of years about her interest in euthanasia. She'd go off to exit forums. I knew that. She said that she admired Philip Nitschke. When she'd start talking like this, I would put my hands over my mm. head like a little girl and I'd go, Mummy, Mummy, don't you want to see your grandchildren, your grandchildren grow up? And I realised that was absolutely the wrong response. I made it very difficult for my mum to have that conversation. And in hindsight, after all the research I've done and listened to older people standing up saying, no one listens to us, I realise now I should have just had a very calm and rational conversation with mum and just said, okay, tell me what you want to do. I will, you know, support you however you want. But that's why the Dr Helena, I feel like she has done it a good way in terms of a good death because she has had this conversation with her adult children for years and years and years. She actually said to me that a few weeks ago she had a big thing of, oh, I can't do it, I can't do it. I, I can't leave you kids. And they were like, mum, don't do this because of us. Do this because of you. And it just set her on the right path mm -hmm. again of what mm -hmm. she wanted to do. And mm. I think that conversation, what, you, what you're saying, Nikki, is it's so important that, you know, there's, I've written, I, I kind of went and, and interviewed a whole lot of the deathling community. There's a whole lot of mainly young people who are talking about death fearlessly, but in a kind of very funky, mm -hmm. weirdo kind of way. So I went off to Brooklyn to the Morbid Anatomy Museum as a writer in residence and did taxidermy classes. <laughs> and, and, you know, really kind of my middle-aged goth girl kind of came <laughs> out. And, and there's a lot of people working, you know, doing some really good work and having death salons and death parties and, and talking very openly in a fun kind of way about death, but who's not invited to those parties? Have a guess. <laughs> Old people. people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And I wonder even if all that funky theoretical stuff really helps. I mean, Stephen, I'd like to ask you about the difference between your professional and your personal attitudes. You've had some experience with friends dying. Mm, do, do you feel differently when you're confronted with a personal I, I, In the middle of writing this book, an old friend of mine, a college roommate with advanced MS, which would not be covered by any voluntary euthanasia law, um, started doing the paperwork for Dignitas. And we talked a lot about that. And she, was, she had been an editor, and she was really fear, and you have to put on one page why you think it's okay for you to die, which is a really profound piece of writing and something that she could not let go of. That took a long time, that process. Um, and at one point I was gonna go with her, but she was in New York and I'm here and it, it, logistically it, it, she, she got someone closer, but that felt different to everything I was writing about and that felt different to the patients I was sitting with. And then in the past year, since the book came out, uh, an old friend who, this time last year, he had back pain. He died in February, and it was advanced cancer. And people often say, with palliative care, how do you do it? And I, 
don't really, I, until recently, I didn't know the answer to that question. And it, it's, it's that I must have healthy boundaries. I don't know why or how. But what, when he died, it felt so entirely different than every other patient I've looked at. I've had patients I've grown close to, you know, families that you, you make a connection with. But I've been able to go home and I've been able to sleep and it hasn't been grief. So it's, it's a very different thing. Is that? Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> the, 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 your friend who had advanced cancer, how, how did he die? Was it a euthanasia? Oh, no, no, no. no, he, no, no, no. He and it was, a good, it was a good death, but, right. it, but it was a good death of a 54-year-old man with his teenage children by his side. Were you involved you, in caring I wasn't for him? I, I, no. I went back sort of the month. You can't really time these trips. No. But I went back about three weeks before he died, and I was, I was there for while he was still talking. But it was, you know, it's for, a good death is also in, in the eye of the beholder. Mm. I don't, I, I think he probably would have thought he had a good death, but I've, I've had to talk to my friend, his wife, quite a bit to say that was a good death. You did everything right. And, you know, he, he was home, he wasn't in pain, he had his family, he had people in the, in the lounge room. And the good death is, is, is a very complicated thing. And it's for the same thing, a, a dying body can do, can not be just fall off sleepily. A dying body can cough or have trouble breathing or struggle. And that can look rough. And so I mean, one thing, our, our, uh, our service in, sort of ensures is that people have something at home that's not Nembutal, but will relax them if needed. And that, that goes a long way. And mm -hmm. that has definitely been, you know, a, a clonazepam for those who want to know. Okay. I think the other thing is that we're focused on what is a good death and, and the logistics of that as if there's a recipe for a good death. But for me, what I learned from writing this book as a human being slash as a medical professional was the, the more important question is what is a good life? And I think you can only answer that when you think about what is a good death for you personally. So I think if we're not thinking about, we all kind of, you know, how many people think they're going to die in their own, or want to die in their own beds at home? <laughs> That's where they want to die, surrounded by, who wants to? Let's have a show of hands. 80% say they want oh, to die at home. Yeah, 80% die in hospital. Get to, or yeah, or something, yeah. It's, it's so it's, it's not a reality disparity. nowadays. Mm. And, and we're not talking about it. So we've got this fantasy, and so have I. Like, I really want to, you know, I want to go out with Jethro Tull and my kids around me or whatever. But it's not probably not going to happen. But I think unless you're having these conversations and planning, uh, like you plan for buying a house, you plan for buying a car, you're planning, you have to plan your death as well as much as you can and, and not leave your loved ones with that kind of baggage and burden to carry sitting in the coroner's court and looking at your autopsy reports. I mean, it's just ghastly. Mm. Mm. Um, Stephen, do, you, do your patients all manage to stay at home or do some of them end up having to go to hospital? It's something, I mean, the point of our service is for, uh, I do community nursing, so the point is for people to be at home if that's where they want to be. And one thing when we meet them, and again, just having the conversation sooner than later is, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but hypothetically, it, when things get hard, would you want to be at home or would you want to be in, the, in a hospice or someplace like that? And some people, are, I, I've, for one, wherever they, you know, 
if it's an agency nurse who's there, that's fine. I've kind mm -hmm. of accepted it. But um, some people are very, very strong and, and about, you know, I, I need to die at home. Their carer might not feel the same way. So that's a conversation that needs to happen early. It puts and quite not, a load not at on midnight. the carer. What? Yeah. It puts a load on the carer to be responsible it's, for it. Yeah. And sometimes I've seen, you know, all sorts of shifts where, you know, the patient gets a little more drifty and a little less concerned about being at home, but the carer's, nope, he wanted to die at home, he's going to die at home. And I see them, you know, not sleeping for days on end. And we support however we can and just, you know, call in, you know, people, this is the worst thing that people do is someone says, how are you doing? You don't, you know, is there something I can do to help? Don't say, fine, there's nothing you can do to help. You can always ask for help and you have more help around you than you think. I think culturally we're not trained to be dependent. We're not trained to think of ourselves getting a bed bath. It may happen to you. I think the most honest conversations I've had in, in my experience as a GP, but also you know, a young intern, um, and in this book, I've been talking to children about death and dying. I, I wrote a whole chapter on children and mortality vis-a-vis -vis, you know, your kids' reactions. And it was really fascinating that they're, they're often very matter-of-fact if they're allowed to be. And they don't carry the same sort of baggage that we do and the same kind of fears about death. And there's been lots of research done about how to talk to children about death. And the, the greatest fear generators are if you're talking about, you know, mummy's gone up to live in the clouds. And then they're kind of, well, is her liver going to rain down on me? <laughs> that kind of, so yeah. talking about it, you know, in, in a more, I guess, biological model, an honest way, it, it, tends to be less traumatising for children. And when you think about the pervasiveness of death in cartoons and in children's movies and, uh, you know, they're everywhere, everyone, Bambi's lost her mother and or his mother and uh, Harry Potter's an orphan. I mean, it's, it's across mm. the board. But when we come to actual real-life death, you know, a lot of the kids aren't even at the funeral. They're not allowed mm. to go to the funeral because... Nikki, you had no chance, of course, to prepare your children, your four children, for the death of their grandmother. How did it affect them? Um, I, I must admit, for me, there's still a sense of kind of anger, which I have to kind of let go of somehow. Um, four days before my mum killed herself, she, um, we all went out for a beautiful family dinner. It was my son's 15th birthday. So... And we know now from that phone call that she made to Philip Nitschke and he kept the recording of it and gave it to me after her death. Um, we know now that um, she was planning to die then at, that, at my son's birthday. So I have a sense of anger that from now on my, son, my eldest son, he, he, his birthday will always be marked by the last time we saw mum and that she was planning to do it then. When it happened... There was an incredible sense of shame, as you were saying, Leah. And um, my husband and I, we made this pact. We thought, this is just awful, this whole police situation, the, the crime scene thing, everything. We will just say that their beloved nonna, their grandma, died in her sleep, which is theoretically what happened. She ended up taking pills, not the Nembatol, swallowed with, downed with Bailey's Irish cream. So basically, grandma died in her sleep. Several days after that, I got a phone call from my eldest son's high school and it was this teacher that he loves at school and she, she just said, um, 
Nikki, your son's had a breakdown. And he's, um, he's come into my office at lunchtime in floods of tears. He was 15 at the time and, and just about to go into his major end of year exams. And, and, and um, she just said, he, he, he keeps on saying, was my grandmother murdered? Why were the police involved? He had all these questions that we didn't realise, my husband and I, we had been feeding because when the four kids, you know, were around us, we'd kind of lower our voices or they'd come into the room and we'd kind of whisper or we'd be explaining to people in kind of whispers what had happened. And my, my high school, I didn't realise that most high schools have school psychologists attached to them. Who, who knew? And, and, and the school said, we have a psychologist full-time on staff. Your son needs to see her. And your other son, your 14-year-old, he also needs to see her. We just need your permission. And I was like, sure. You know, I hadn't even... This hadn't entered my world, my, my thinking, the whole world of psychologists. So this wonderful woman rang me. I said, my God, can I go and see you too? You're so amazing. She said, that's not a good look, walking through the school playground, middle-aged woman coming to me. But I can see your sons. She said to me, and it was such wonderful advice, I realise in hindsight, she just said, you have to be honest. She said, if you don't tell those boys what their grandmother has done, then... They will find out eventually, as children mm -hmm. do. They will hate you for it, for not being truthful, and they will grieve all over again. So you will be putting them through this grieving process twice. So that afternoon I bit the bullet and my two sons came home from high school and I sat them down on either side of me. I told them everything I knew from what the police had told me, from what the morgue assistant had told me. And it was quite extraordinary to see these two beautiful young men kind of transform in front of my eyes from children into adults. It was like I could see in their faces, I could see in their eyes that they had entered, been catapulted into a hugely adult world here about choice and despair and empowerment and desolation and all the rest of it. But at least we were having the conversation. And weirdly, from that moment, the shame went. It was like, if I can talk about this openly with my kids, I can talk about this openly with anyone. And it was like a great burden had lifted from my shoulders. And that kind of kick-started, you know, a long way down the track, the whole writing process and just talking to others, so many others, mm. who've, who've lost someone tragically, it's not talked about. We do need to have these conversations more. Mm. I'm going to open to your questions. I just wanted to raise one other aspect of dying. Sudden death, of course, is traumatic and shocking and its own experience. I'm one of many, I'm sure some of you in the room are sharing this, who are in the process of putting my father at the age of 92 into a nursing home as he declines uh, <coughs> slowly over the years, now quite rapidly. And it's hard in its own way to watch the slow death of someone you love. Um, Lou, he has dementia, he's going blind, he suddenly can't walk, you know, it's all breaking down. And I just, um, I, I was very interested in another book on, um, on this subject of dying. Karen Hitchcock, who's another doctor in Melbourne, wrote a small book, an essay really, called Dear Life. On, um, on caring for the elderly. And she is quite adamantly against uh, 
assisted dying, just because she thinks it's a bit of a cop-out in many cases, and that hospitals and nursing homes are almost giving up on people where they should be providing care and palliative care. And I just wondered if you have an opinion, all or any of you, on how nursing homes are looking after people and caring for them at the end. I we often are called into nursing homes because nursing homes don't feel that they, certain ones don't feel that they do palliative care well, which tells you something. Why, why should a nursing home not, not feel adequate with, with palliative care? And it, 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 it's simply a, a matter of funding. I don't think it's, it's, it's will. I, very rarely does it look like bad management. It looks like everybody's just doing this by the seat of their pants because we, we spend more on schools than we're going to spend on aged care. So it's, it's... Which we probably should, <laughs> but, but well, it's, it's a well, shame it, it if it has to be it, either or. It depends. Yeah. Talk to me in 20 years, <laughs> yeah, 30 right. years. Yeah. Um, and I think, uh, that, that, I can't recommend that, that Karen Hitchcock article enough. It was a quarterly essay, Dear Life. Every, it required reading for all people. And, and I really appreciate her point of view that, 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 that death is part of the whole project. It's, it, it happens like birth. It might not happen when you want it to happen or it might not happen as comfortably as you anticipate, but it's, it's still part of things. And, and I, I, she's quite persuasive on this point. And it, for, for me writing the book, I went in hoping to find out how I felt about this subject. And I really didn't come out any clearer. I have the, the, to jump in there yeah. um, that I think I respect Karen's essay and I think she's a beautiful writer and mm. she's got a very valid point of view but I think she writes from a perspective of a hospital doctor and hospitals have become the place where we go to die. That's the mecca for dying. It's shifted so dramatically from mm. dying in the home, mm. um, even the nursing homes now, you know, the minute there's a sniff of death in the air, or call U the ambulance. Or UTI. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. A urinary tract infection, just call the ambulance, send yeah. them into casualty. Yeah. And so the, the ECG machines are sort of, you know, beeping the final farewell. There's no one sitting the vigil. There's not Marcus Welby sitting there holding your hand and, you know. Um, so I think Karen's essay is an important one and really groundbreaking, but I think it's limited by, by her perspective as a yeah. hospital doctor. And I'm out there in the community and so yeah. are you. And I think this kind of... It's, it's not just up to one team or one person. It, it really should be a broader conversation. Well, obviously, all of our books are also required reading. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they yeah. are fantastic books. And uh, reading them all, again, in a couple of cases, reading them all together, wow, it's a rich diet. And, you know, there are no clear answers to any of this, but it's so helpful. Yes, of course that, you can. That last question yeah. last yeah. Thank yeah. you. I just wanted to say my two beautiful Newcastle grandmothers both had good deaths in Newcastle nursing homes, one uh, both on the shores of Lake Macquarie, one at Toronto and one at Cardiff. And I was very impressed with both those facilities. But saying that, my mother, who also saw her own mother's death in the Toronto nursing home, she was terrified of nursing homes. And what nursing homes mm. meant to her were, was a relinquishing of control. And she never wanted to get to that point where she would go into a nursing home and would not be able to end her life in the way that she wanted to, that she would not have access to the drugs and the whole Philip Nitschke situation in a nursing home. 
I feel like I made a big mistake towards the end of her life. I said to her, Mum, Mum, I, I need to call a family conference so we can work out your care. You know, she had two sons in Newcastle, I'm in Sydney, she's in Sydney. It was all over the place with family and all the rest of it. I was talking about people coming into the house, helping her with her chronic pain, whatever. I now think about that conversation in hindsight. I think she interpreted that as, oh my God, the kids want to put me into mm. a nursing home. And I dread that more than anything. And I have to act and do something before we get to that stage. And that's mum's tragedy. And that's, if I can jump in on that, how sad that, that even that nursing homes can't change also. I mean, there are, there are certainly models around the world of extraordinary places where they've got students, you know, renting rooms there or having rooms given to them for free mm. at the price of um, engaging with the elderly. They've, you know, they bring pets in. There's so many different alternatives and mm. models around the world that are extraordinary. The Zen... Um, facility in San Francisco where people actually do have choices. It doesn't have to be that sterile urine, uniferous kind of I, corridor. I, mean, I don't even walk into a nursing home that smells like that at all anymore. I think no, they've gone I past become that. big business. That's the problem. <laughs> they are it's big business counters. and highly bureaucratic and my God, yeah. it's a process to get there. It's McDonald's medicine. At a very expensive price, yes. not McDonald's prices. I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask some questions. Yes, jump in there and let's keep going. Uh, you've all spoken really eloquently about the importance of uh, conversations. I just, I guess, I want people to. I work in health, in the system, the bureaucratic <laughs> system. <laughs> there are some great resources available, though, around conversations. In the United States, they started a project called the Conversation Project. You guys will probably be familiar. It's a great website that people can go to to get templates. Like, if you're leaving here thinking, oh, it'd be good to have a conversation with my people about some of the stuff we've talked about. There's some really good resources. Locally, uh, we've developed a Let's Start Talking website, which you can find on patientinfo.org. It's a commercial, not a question. <laughs> okay. But I just just jumping on the back of that, I'm actually ambassador for something called Dying to Know Day, and I highly recommend it. it. It is one day a year where there are conversations nationally about death and also internationally, but it's broader than that, and Kerry Noonan heads that up, a very brave woman, so I would encourage you also to look at her um, material and website too. Yes. Hi, sorry, I'm obviously not old, so sorry to take up the air in this conversation. No, you're the most important. <laughs> no, I was just, I was just thinking that normally the, 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 the age, you, you brought the, the, the median age Which down Which is brilliant. So you're our great. target audience. <laughs> um, I am a child that experienced death. My dad passed away at eight from cancer. Um, thanks to my mum. I'm very open about it. Um, I think you were so right when you say we have to have conversations about it, and we as humans inherently always ask, like, oh, do you think it would be better if your dad died when you were older or when you were younger so you didn't know as much and blah, 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 all those questions that people ask. Um, but they're always like based from fear. And I'm just wondering, from your perspective in your roles in the industry, where do we start with breaking down the social constructs of fear around death? Where do we start the conversation? You start with the language, I think. It's really important when you think about how we talk about um, death you know, you'll be dying for a drink, you'll be, oh, you know, I could kill a sandwich now. Or, the, the language of mortality is so embedded in our everyday life. But when we talk about death, it's all, oh, he passed. Or, you know, he's taking a dirt nap. Um, it's ridiculous. We can't actually, in our language, we can't just say, he died. We're scared. I, I also think that, because that I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with this with my friend's 
kids who are teens to 20 that they don't they don't know the people don't their friends don't know how to talk to them which sounds like what you're oh my god all the time and so unfortunately you actually have to be the ambassador here and the, and the the possibly the best thing to for the conversation is for people who have had experiences to illuminate others so it's it's unfortunately it's your job <laughs> to, to raise you have to raise the bar is it Sorry about that. <laughs> but I think it's a sacred job. I really mm. think it's a sacred job. And I think, you know, if you've read the Harry Potter series where Harry's the only one that can see yeah. the horses that take the carriage into because he's experienced death, I think it puts you in a position of knowledge or of, of experience that others don't have and they're frightened of that. So you can be that bridge. And you get to say, this is, this is how it changed me. This is how I survived. And this is how it's real. And this is how it's made me a more compassionate and empathic human being. So good for you. <laughs> yes. Thank you. What a panel. Um, uh, I've experienced a lot of what you've had. I'm a GP also who's done palliative care. One of the ways that uh, a palliative care doctor locally, I'm from Maitland, friend of Cessna, <laughs> just up the road. Uh, one of the palliative care doctors locally um, brought out the idea that as doctors, and I think we can all do this as families, if you have sitting in your room or you are visiting a patient who you don't think is going to be around in 12 months' time, that's when you start the conversation. They're in hospital every two months with cardiac failure, respiratory failure, their cancer problem, even depression. And I did lose a mother to suicide also, so you ladies have touched, a, touched something there. But that's, I think, when all of us need to start the conversation. No one wants to, but palliative care isn't the last month of your life. Mm -hmm. And that's what so many people are frightened of. It's not the morphine drip, the triple M, you know, the morphine maxillon midazolam mm -hmm. tube. It's starting to think about what's going to happen in the next 12 months. And that was the best piece of advice I got. Do you, did, a because a couple of years ago, the, the, something came into Medicare where GPs, there's an item number for having the, the advanced care um, plan. An advanced care plan, and we're not doing it. And you're I'm not, and GPs it. are not doing it. No. But well. sometimes patients don't want to they hear don't it. They want it, and we're a bit mm. busy. And you're busy. <laughs> right. It it, there may be a time. Medicare number, but you don't have an extra 10 minutes for, to, to, to bring yep. that up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a thing in general practice I call the Ebbets. You think you finished a consultation. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, um, by the way, I'm having chest pain <laughs> over here. I call it yeah. the Ebert. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much. Um, keep talking, guys. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you. Well, that, that's a good point for me to carry on because I have been amazed at how hard and how long it is taking to get the message out there about the advanced medical directives. And Susan made the comment, I think it was you a moment ago, I have now signed an advanced care directive that has a section at the back. If I get to the point of being in an aged care institution, I do not want to live any longer. And I'll leave my euthanasia views out of this conversation. The advanced medical directive that I have signed has a, a bit at the back, done by Colleen Cartwright, I think, at Southern Cross University, that I can tick boxes. If I'm in an aged care institution, I want to be taken to hospital if, and there were about six or eight <laughs> alternatives and the only one I ticked was if I break a bone because if there's anything else happens to me I want to go but the general population don't know about it it's a great lead on for your family if you've got or your local GP I've got this form can I discuss <laughs> this with you or with the kids and my kids rolled their eyes and said oh mum you know mm -hmm. but
but it's a start for people who find it difficult. So I'm just wondering, Susan, if you if you hear people in the community talking about it, or do not people yeah. not know about it? Yeah, there's no quick what, answer to that. I, I, I admire how you can for we doing get the it. the word around? I think yeah. is my question. I think yes. I think the conversation has to start way before me sitting down and pulling out a form and saying, do you want to sign an advanced care directive? Yeah. Um, and I think the conversation really has to start with families. And, and that's where, you know, this has been flagged as a joyful book about death. And I'm not saying that flippantly. I think there has to be also some joy in the conversation. So I sit around the table with my kids and I go, when I'm gone, who wants that um, singing duck over there that I got at Camberwell yeah. Market? And, you know, my daughter says, I want it. And then they start having a fight about all of that. <laughs> so it's sort of injecting black humour, and that's our way of doing it, into then directing it into an important conversation. The sad thing about um, advanced care directives is that once you get through the doors into the bowels of the hospital, they are often ignored. Well, they shouldn't be. They, they shouldn't they should, be, they should but I'm telling you, they number. are often ignored, or they, they can't mm. find them, or someone's mm. just going to pull a heroic. It's, it's... Well, I think that's the first. My question is, what should we do to ensure... Yeah, but then, you know, if, you, if, if it happens in an emergency and, and it's not there and it's not on record in the hospital, right. yeah, no the one's going to start gonna say, ringing up your family and them. saying, has she got an advanced yeah. care yeah. directive? No. no. This will have to be our last question. Thank you. Uh, I suppose it's more of a comment on what's just being discussed. My mother went into uh, a nursing home about four months ago and on the topic of advanced care directives, well, one of the first documents that was given along with contracts was this, this document... And when someone first goes into a nursing home, there are a lot of things to think about, and it's a very emotional experience, the, the loss of, of power. My mother was very independent. Um, and I think I've almost found it harder to see her going to a nursing home than she herself fitting into the environment. And, and as we were, I was listening to what you were saying, I was thinking, well, are the nursing homes really for people to live in or to die in? Because... Um, my mother's there to continue living, mm. despite the fact that she talks about death quite, you know, naturally she doesn't have a problem talking about death. She's there to, to live. And uh, the advanced care directive being handed to, to the family members, to my mother, is, is not sort of indicative of continuing living. It's a very practical yeah. document that's necessary. but. I didn't feel that I could talk to her about it because for me she was going there to continue living, not to die. So just putting a, a perspective of, you know, why is this difficult? And in my observation of the people in the nursing home at various stages of physical and mental deterioration, um, I see that people need psychological help and they, they don't have anybody there that they can get I that think, Can I just from? interrupt and jump in there, because I know sure. we're very short yeah, on time. But I think all, all these conversations about death and institutionalisation of death, it's like it's been sequestered. It's happening off stage. You know, your mother died off stage. People are in nursing homes off stage. Hospitals, morgues, they're, under, they're in the basement. We don't... Death's not part of the fabric of our society anymore, even when it comes to eating meat. We don't talk about it. We, we don't want to talk about it. So these conversations, I think, are crucial, absolutely crucial. I don't have answers, but boy, I've got more and more questions. Mm. Mm. Okay. Thanks. But can I just say, I think 
that people, uh, like you were talking about psychologists being in the schools for your sons, it would be nice if there were psychologists in nursing homes because people there are very needy as That's well. That's what yeah. I thought too. Yeah. 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 Why is it just a school? Yes, yeah. yes. Thank you. Thanks very Look, much. I'm sorry we have to leave there. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you all, Lear and Nikki and Stephen. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you. It's been wonderful. I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation from the 2017 Newcastle Writers' Festival. We hope you can join us this year from Friday, April the 6th to the 8th. We have 130 of Australia's best writers coming to town ready to share their ideas and insights. For more information, please visit newcastlewritersfestival.org.au.